Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And I'm Lauren Evans. Carjackings are becoming more and more common in Washington, D.C. And honestly, everywhere. It feels like crime is just on the rise. And every time you turn on the news, you hear about someone else who's kind of famous, um, who was either had some sort of run-in um, in in some way with crime or things like Philadelphia going totally bonkers and there being massive looting and theft. But the latest news, Texas Democrat Congressman Henry Cuellar was parking his car in the Navy Yard area of Washington, D.C. on Monday night when three armed gunmen approached him and stole his car. Now, they got his car back. And he said that when press talked to him, he was like, you know, I, I think they were pretty young. He he didn't think he was specifically targeted because he was a member of Congress. But obviously, this raises a lot of concerns about safety. And like I mentioned, you think of cities like Philly. My, my brother-in-law has this year been in Oakland for Oakland, California for work four times, three out of those four times, his car has been broken into. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like it, it just sort of feels like we're at this point crime wise where it's like, okay, something has to change and we maybe need to find middle ground between like 1800s where you like lost a hand for stealing an apple and <laughs> what we have right now. But what we have right now doesn't seem to be working at all. Yeah. I mean, I think just kind of to your point, my boyfriend lost his camera because someone broke into his car in his apartment's parking garage, which oh was a gosh. secure, quote unquote, facility. Obviously, there is absolutely no push for for safety, for protection of people's rights. Like we have property rights for a reason in Virginia. I just paid my, my car property rights. It oh, was like I did too. Hugely so expensive. Annoying. <laughs> yet it's totally OK for people to destroy your property. And I think. You know, Henry probably played it cool because he knows that he has to pander to the, a certain side of the aisle on this one. And it, it's just kind of sad because we just don't care. Well, and I and I will defend I will defend the Democratic congressman a little bit because he, he was super respectful of law enforcement. He was like, yeah, D.C. police, they're doing their job. He's has police officers in his family. But I do think that there's this level of, OK, we, we need for, really it's so much comes down to our criminal justice system as far as our legal system and prosecutors. And we have this term at the Heritage Foundation that we use called rogue prosecutors um, that was coined by Cully Stimson and Zach Smith. And it's prosecutors that aren't actually prosecuting people. So if as a criminal, you know, I can steal a car and I'll get a slap on the wrist. Why not? Well, I think what we have to remember, though, is we're not even three years away from D.C. painting entire street block, defund the police. <laughs> mm. yep. there, this is not yep. random. This is not like, oh, my gosh, why is there crime? There was a concerted effort from the left during 2020 to stigmatize police, to drive them out of their jobs, to defund them, quote unquote. And now we're seeing those consequences. And these people are innocent lives are being harmed because of these consequences. Mm -hmm. and, and we say this all the time on the show, like actions have consequences. Yep. And that this is what we're living. And it, it's really scary how quickly it can go from this crazy leftist idea to this, you know, slogan that mobs chant to now people getting hurt. I mean, there was a D.C. commander or, you know, the football team. He was shot eight blocks from here, just mm. walking down the street. I mean, people are, are stabbed all the time. People here in, at Heritage, even though it's a fairly safe part of D.C., safe in quotes, they're scared to cross the street at night. I mean, the, it went, I've lived in D.C. for now 12 years. Four years ago when I lived in the city, I would walk at night, no problem, never think twice. And now 
when I leave here, I'm going straight to Virginia because I'm not going to spend the you know any time in D.C. at night. The promised yeah. land. Yeah. No. yeah. And to your point, Coley Simpson, he he came out with a book. I don't remember. Was it Zach? Rogue prosecutors. Yeah. Also, or book. was it just yeah. Coley? No, no, it was, it was Coley Zach, and Zach. Zach. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we had some some friends at the Heritage Foundation come out with uh, the Rogue Prosecutor book, where they explain how a lot of these cities have these you know people in power and they're not doing anything. And he's pushing. Um, for, you know, reform so that, you know, when just like literally just asking the third time that a criminal commits a crime, that they actually, you know, be prosecuted the normal way, what we used yeah. to do. Let's not normalize this fake justice justice system. Let's not normalize violence. Let's actually have some action to those consequences. We did a documentary not that long ago. There was a, a man who should not have been on the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got an alterca- altercation with a with Glenn Hilliard. He was a deputy and on duty, and he was killed by this criminal that should have never been on the street. That is a dad. That is a father. That is a mm-hmm. husband who is no longer with us because of these policies. Mm-hmm. And that's what always gets me is people want to just be like, oh, it's like whatever. It's crime. It's a city. It happens. No, people are dying. It's just like with our southern border. When we when we keep these holes wide open, people are getting in, and there is danger to American citizens that is n- senseless. There there are yeah. things in this world that we cannot fix, and this is one thing that is easy to fix, and we're not doing it. Well, we are hitting the ground running today. Our audience didn't know. Like <laughs> I clicked on, was expecting to hear you guys talk about Taylor Swift during the intro, and now we're deep into crime. So here we go. I mean, it is a crime that Taylor Swift is oh. <laughs> encroaching in football. <laughs> Lauren's hot take for the day, but I think she has a few more. All right. We are going to be talking a lot today just about that, about how actions have consequences, catching you guys up on some really big news from Washington, D.C. Kristen, go ahead. Let us know what we have queued up. Up on today's Problematic Women, it has been an eventful several days on Capitol Hill. There's an investigation over a lawmaker pulling a fire alarm at the same time as a vote over a spending package. And in a historic moment, the House Speaker was ousted from his position. Plus, New York City just became the first U.S. city to offer on-demand phone appointments for abortion kits. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. All right, Virginia, I'm not sure how many fire fire drills you did in elementary school, but it seems that former principal Jamal Bowman hasn't heard of them, which explains why, honestly, he believed pulling one would open the doors as he ran to a vote to fund the government. (laughs) Um, Some are saying he did so in an attempt to delay the vote that would prevent a government shutdown, but he claimed it was a mistake, explaining that the signs that he saw, like emergency exit and fire alarm, were confusing. (laughs) In a recent statement, He actually justified his actions saying, but I want to be very clear. This was not me in any way trying to delay any vote. It was the exact opposite. I was trying urgently to get to the vote, which I ultimately did. And I'm sorry, but what? (laughs) What is he thinking? (laughs) It is is a little bit hard to believe that he didn't 
know the handle that he was pulling was a fire alarm, considering the fact that, for one, he's an, an adult, and, and two, he has he has worked in schools before. So it this this is a very interesting scenario, and there there is an investigation looking into this because obviously it's uh, not an acceptable tactic. If and those are so those are some of the accusations that are being made specifically from those on the political right that that he was trying to delay a vote in the house and it was a, a tactic to kind of bring additional confusion. And of course, he continues to insist. It was nothing but an accident. Like, he should just admit that he thought it was a push when it was a pull or something. You know, like, that would have made more sense at this point than his, I thought it would open the door. Yeah. I mean, this weekend was just a mess. A <laughs> little bit of a dumpster fire. And it's just the, the irony of the this party that spends all this time. And, and I don't want to, like, comment too much on January 6th, but it's just, like, it's tired. It's, you know, the insurrection and all this stuff that happened and all this stuff and how, like, and then he goes and he pulls a fire alarm. Like, yeah. that, is, that is a pot calling the kettle black and you lose all your insurrection talking privileges yeah. after that. Because, it, I mean, it is. You are, that he was, they were, there is no other way to spin it besides he was trying to do whatever he can. You've never looked at a fire alarm and been like, this might open the door. <laughs> it says fire on it. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's pull it. But to your point, the queen of calling the, the kettle black or pot calling the kettle black, uh, AOC was on CNN and she said that, you know, it was it was a stressful time. This isn't an exact quote. This is me exaggerating. But it was a stressful time. And, you know, we were about to go into a shutdown and it was scary. And I'm sitting here and even CNN was sitting there like it was a fire alarm. He was pulling a fire alarm. And this is the same woman who thought she died or almost died on January 6th. That's all I'm going to say about that. Mm, mm. Well, you know, I'm sure we have all had those moments at some point, whether it was in school or a super stressful day at work, where you walk by a fire alarm (laughs) and you just sort of look at it for a second longer. And you just sort of wonder, huh, (laughs) what would happen? (laughs) Well, what we saw happen in relation to that vote on this spending bill and the pulling of the fire alarm also led up to a pretty historic situation, not pretty, a very historic situation in the House this week. And we are going to discuss that in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you all about one of my favorite ways to get the news and keep up with the issues that I care about. If you're anything like me, you enjoy doing a little bit of research on YouTube or maybe just simply being entertained. But, you know, sometimes it's really hard to know what information is actually well-researched and trustworthy on YouTube. And that is where the Daily Signal YouTube channel comes in. We are constantly posting new videos that are designed to keep you up to date on the news that you care about and give you data and facts in a really succinct way on some of the biggest issues and policy topics topics that you're hearing about. The Daily Signal YouTube channel features policy explainer videos, documentaries, and entertaining clips from podcast interviews just like this one. So if you want to stay informed with the news that you care about, if you want to be entertained, make sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel today so you never miss out on our new content. Right. So like I just said, the spending fight that we just talked about and just giving a a tiny bit more background on that, the government every year we have to debate, decide, yes, we we want to fund the government for the next year. And Congress has the power of the purse. So they're the ones who 
debate those spending packages. The fiscal year ends at the end of September. The new year starts at the beginning of October. Obviously, we've just started the new fiscal year. But what usually happens is that lawmakers kick the can down the road with something called a continuing resolution, a CR, where they fund the government for like a month and they give themselves more time to debate on the actual larger spending bills for the new fiscal year. So that is more or less what happened, that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is like, okay, we're not reaching an agreement. I'm going to bring a short-term spending bill to the floor of the House. We're going to vote on it. The issue was that there were a number of Republicans who didn't want any funding of the government without agreements to cut federal government spending and secure our southern border. So there was already tension going into this vote last week, but the short-term spending bill did pass. The government is funded through November 17th. However, um, that, that vote on that short-term spending bill began a larger debate and situation revolving around the House Speaker. So this began Monday night when Florida Republican Representative Matt Gates introduced a motion to remove House Speaker Kevin McCarthy from his position as Speaker. And Gates said that he was considering doing this as a result of that continuing resolution being brought to the floor of the House and voted on at the end of last week. And like I said, Gates and some other Republicans, they've been very clear that the government should not receive any funding until an agreement is reached to cut federal spending and secure the border. So when McCarthy brought that short-term spending measure to the floor for a vote, Gates essentially said, you know, McCarthy has betrayed the party and advocated for him to be ousted. So here was Gates on the House floor earlier this week bringing the motion to dismiss McCarthy via C-SPAN. For what purpose does the gentleman from Florida now seek recognition? Mr. Speaker, pursuant to Clause 2A1 of Rule 9, I rise to give notice of my intent to raise a question of the privileges of the House. The gentleman will state the form of his resolution. Declaring the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives to be vacant, resolved that the office of Speaker of the House of Representatives is hereby declared to be vacant. So in the final vote on the House floor on Tuesday night, all Democrats voted with eight Republicans to oust House Speaker Kevin McCarthy from his position. So, yeah, we saw 216 to 210 uh, was the final vote, and that was the 208 Democrats plus the Republicans who voted to remove McCarthy, who were representatives Andy Biggs, Eli Crane of Arizona, uh, Ken Buck of Colorado, Tim Burkett of Tennessee, Bob Good of Virginia, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, and Matt Rosendale of Montana, and of course, Gates. And uh, McCarthy, since this this time, has said that he will not run for speaker again. So for now, we don't really know who the next speaker of the House will be. Um, It's tentatively scheduled to have a conference on this on Tuesday to discuss who the next speaker would be. And they might hold a vote on early Wednesday. But other than that, we're not entirely sure. That's just kind of where we stand. But Virginia, can you can you tell us who are some of the names being talked about in D.C. as those who might be the possible next Speaker of the House? Yeah, so we really are learning information in real time. There's a lot that can change in a week before we have that 
possible first vote next Wednesday. But essentially, the, the folks that are being talked about right now are those who are already in leadership, in GOP leadership in the House. So you have names being thrown out, like um, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana, uh, Republican Study Committee Chairman Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, Chairman of the House Republican Conference Elise Stefanik of New York, Majority Whip Representative Tom Emmer of Minnesota. So for now, what we have is uh, Representative Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. He has temporarily taken on the role of speaker, but he has not expressed any interest himself as being the speaker of the House. So right now we're in a little bit of just a holding pattern. We're, we're waiting to see what's decided. But, you know, the role of House Speaker, it's a big job because in addition to doing your own work representing your own district, you then have all of these added responsibilities as House Speaker. So at the beginning of every new Congress, every two years, members of Congress get together, they vote on who the new Speaker will be. And it's important to note that not much at all, like nothing can happen in the House of Representatives without a Speaker. So there can't be bills brought to the floor for a vote. Activity kind of grinds to a halt in the House when there is no Speaker of the House. The Speaker, he administers the oath of office to members of the House of Representatives. One of his biggest, he or she's biggest job as Speaker is the responsibility of declaring votes, bringing votes to the floor, appointing members to committees, sending bills to committees, and signing bills and resolutions that are passed in the House. The Speaker notably is also second in line after the vice president to become president if something happens to the to the president and vice president so it's a really important job and at this point maybe by the time uh we're we're back on parliamentary women next week we will know who the new house speaker is but that is really tbd but one critical thing that everyone's talking about is the fact that until we have a House Speaker, there can't be that continued debate on budget and spending. And when folks were talking about the the fall for Congress, that was the biggest thing that everyone thought was going to be central, center of attention was debate over spending packages. Well, now we have this other huge, huge news piece where they first have to decide who the Speaker of the House is, then we can return to debate on spending and budget and all of that. So all I'd say, it is going to be a wild fall in Congress here in Washington, D.C. Definitely not a dull moment. Uh, and it's it's very possible that things things will remain very lively right up until Christmas. But hopefully, hopefully they... Um, they get some movement soon and don't don't keep the nation on pins and needles. But we'll see. Well, there are crazier things happening, believe it or not. <laughs> New York City wants New York City is now going to give out abortion pills after doing a quick online visit with a provider, which is just insane. According to our colleague, Mary Margaret over at the Daily Signal. New York City's health system has become the first in the nation to offer, quote, on-demand virtual abortion access. What does that mean? New York City now has something called Virtual Express Care. A city news release says, beginning this week, patients in New York City seeking abortion care will be able to schedule a virtual express care appointment to speak with a New York State licensed health care professional by video or phone on demand for an assessment and counseling. I'm sure. Counseling. counseling. I'm sure. Yes. If clinically appropriate and prescribed, 
patients will be able to receive a medication abortion kit Mm -hmm. at their New York City address within a few days. So women in New York City who are seeking to abort their unborn baby can access this service seven days a week, uh, but they have to be able to attest that they will be in the city when they take the abortion drugs. And if the women ask to receive abortion drugs by mail, the address must be in New York City, according to the release. And the abortion drugs are available to clinically eligible patients who are up to 10 weeks into their pregnancy. I mean, I'm starting to feel with cities like New York, like it, it's it's so frustrating how extreme they go at the same time i'm like is this i'm I'm almost not surprised anymore right like they've just gone so radical that even though we know that there's serious health concerns for women having abortions in their homes without uh without doctors um and not having that professional diagnosis of, of yes you are definitely x number of weeks pregnant None of that happening. We know that there's serious health concerns to the women, of course, deadly health concerns to their unborn baby. But should we expect anything less from New York City? Absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> this is the same city where they were like, everybody's welcome, sanctuary city. And now they're like, well, maybe not anymore. We're actually dying. Yeah. So yeah. I this mean, actually isn't working. Yeah. The whole city smells like pee. I mean, I know a lot of people love New York. It's very cool to go and like look at, but it like, you're there for like 10 minutes. You're like, okay, garbage, pee, <laughs> I'm dying. It does like, smell so let bad. Me go see the, let me see the sun again. Uh, and then, I mean, the, we talked about the crime. The crime is terrible in New York City. Cost of living is crazy expensive. And Mayor Eric Adams even says, like he admits, this is this points back to Dobbs. We are doing this to do everything that we can to like show the right. I mean, and this pro life movement that we're gonna like do everything we can to like ha- make sure that people are getting abortions. Mm-hmm. And when you think break that down, that is absolutely evil. We are saying. Mm-hmm. We care more about, like, quote-unquote, women's rights. So we want women to terminate their pregnancy just to show that, oh, you got this thing wrong. Yeah. I feel like this is the Office episode where Michael's dating um, Pam's mom, and he's like, I'm just going to do it harder now. And it's like, when is enough enough? When when are we going to actually, you know, the city is full of people that actually care about their health a lot. They go to the Equinox, they'll go get green <laughs> smoothies afterwards, but then they'll put something in their body that they have absolutely no idea what it'll do. Um, I, I really, is, has the FDA even approved of this? I'm not, I'm sure it has, but at this point, that's like, I'm not sure if I can even trust it because we just continue to see this, this, I, I don't want to use the word normalization again because I've already said it a few times in the show, but it's this normalization of, oh, abortion's fine. Like it's we're normalizing abortion just like we normalized wearing masks for two years, just like we normalized, you know, not being able to be with our loved ones because of of a disease. And, and while, you know, I do care about the lives of others, like it doesn't seem like this is something that's protecting the lives of others. It's doing the exact opposite. It's doing the exact opposite. That's exactly what it's doing. Well, and I'm I'm curious if we're going to see legal challenges. I, I think we likely might because obviously this is such such a critical issue. I mean, we're talking about life and death. It's literally a life and death situation. So I'm optimistic that um, the folks in the in the pro-life community are going to say, wait a second, <laughs> this flies in the face of actually, of course, protecting babies, but also protecting women. 
Do we have the specifics on on what's included in this kit? Because I've also seen, you know, for a while they were doing birth control mailer things where you got a, you know, chocolate with it. And it was almost like an incentive, you know. And I I just it's scary to think about the power of good marketing and branding and also just little cute things like that. I mean, we have subscription boxes now for whatever you want at this point. And it's just scary. It is scary. And it's sad. Well, stay tuned because next we are crowning our problematic woman of the week. He was evading police. We were told that he was recruited on TikTok by the cartel. He was on Facebook Live and he was going over 105 miles an hour. He came straight off that exit and he ran that red light and he crashed into her and killed them. He, he mutilated them. What you just heard are the first few seconds of a brand new documentary from The Daily Signal on the real cost of the Biden administration's border crisis. We spoke with Elisa Tambunga, a mother who has experienced unfathomable tragedy and loss at the hands of a human smuggler. You can find the full documentary telling Elisa Tambunga's story on The Daily Signal's YouTube page or across our social media platforms. Now, it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... Tammy! (laughs) Tammy is a Wisconsin parent who was part of a lawsuit suing Kettle Moraine School District, accusing the district of violating their parental rights by adopting a policy to allow, facilitate, and affirm a minor student's request to transition to a different gender identity at a school without parental consent, and even over the parents' objections. (laughs) That's a big no-no. In other words, if the school was calling Tammy's daughter by a boy name and pronouns at school, she felt she had the right to know about it. And she was part of a lawsuit arguing that. That case was brought by our friends over at Alliance Defending Freedom. And on Tuesday, a county circuit court ruled in Tammy and the other parents' favor. Big, big win. Big win. Yeah, we're not using Tammy's last name for her privacy and for her child's privacy. We don't actually know um, the details of, of Tammy's story specifically. Obviously, want to respect that family's privacy. But this is something that keeps coming up, right, where parents are saying, hey, if a school district is referring to my um, daughter as Tommy and calling my daughter he and him, I have a right to know about it. And so many school districts across the country have put policies in place to say, no, as a parent, you don't have a right to know about it. Uh, The school, as, as the school, we are going to, quote unquote, protect your child from you, the parent. And parents like Tammy are standing up and saying, uh, No, actually, it's the other way around. My child, I will protect and please just educate my child. Know your place, school. So this is a significant win. And I think encouraging to see that uh, our, our legal system is getting this one right and recognizing, yes, parents have a right to know what is happening in school buildings. Well, and we're up against a Goliath, right? Like we are up against a well-funded, well-organized movement when, when it comes to like this trans agenda. I mean, it's not a not a secret that they're trying to get stuff in books and they're, you know, infused in the teachers unions. And these small cases, and I don't even want to even say, but these cases are what's going to help us move forward. I mean, we talked 
the Thomas More Society, they represented two teachers who fought back against this. They really add up. And as our friend Sarah Perry would talk about, set precedent, right? And the mm-hmm. more precedent that we can set to push back and to automatically throw out these rules, it's so powerful moving forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're good wake-up calls to remind people that they're working to benefit the children, not they're working, you know, like parents are <laughs> parents are in charge. Yeah. Full yeah. stop. Full stop. Full stop. All right. Well, congratulations to Tammy on being crowned Problematic Woman of the Week. And I do want to take a minute to thank everyone that voted on our poll on Instagram related to should we have men on the podcast to talk about dating. 93% of you said yes. 7% said no. I'm I'm sorry to the 7%, but majority rules here on Problematic Women. Wait, I feel like I get a vote. I say no boys. (laughs) Didn't you bring? Did you vote in the pool? In the poll? (laughs) Yeah, but I feel like I should just election integrity, Lauren. That's what we're doing. The audience, ninety-three percent of our audience. This is not a democracy. This is is a cheerocracy. Don't worry. We'll we'll just do it on a week. You're not on the show. (laughs) We'll we'll sneak him in. We'll sneak in the boys. But Lauren doesn't know. Won't hurt her. Exactly. It may or may not be up in uh, one of my my staffers' office. That exact phrase. (laughs) That's hilarious. Well, so at some point this fall, we're gonna we're gonna bring some guys on to um, to talk about dating. I'll take out Virginia as speaker next week. (laughs) (laughs) You can you can file a motion for that. Oh my god! Motion to vacate a podcast house. (laughs) Uh, Help me out here, guys. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, that's gonna do it for today's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. As conservatives, we need your support in the podcast world. So take just a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you like to listen to podcasts we're across all podcast platforms and leave us a five-star rating and review we love seeing your feedback it means so much to us have a great week Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.